I'm going to do that song as an invitation for those of you in the sound booth um, and on the praise team. Let me just say, uh, I want to say thank you to Patrick for filling in the last two Sundays. Uh, when Patrick came on, I said one of the things we really appreciate about staff members here is that they are team players. And he came in and became the ultimate Jose Kindo the last couple Sundays. So I just want to say thank you to him. I've said that privately. I want to say it publicly. I also listened to your messages, on, and uh, one of the things uh, Patrick talked about was his daughter Whitney in her room when she was afraid, saying, I want somebody with skin on. And that struck me because I also want to say, I, I bragged to Patrick about this church, didn't I? And, and uh, you guys have shown that once again to me. Uh, just in rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And I just want to say I appreciate all the cards and the calls and the visits and the encouragement and the love that you have shown to myself and to Tempa and to our family at this time. And I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Um, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. And today I want to talk about the bottom line. You know, that's kind of a popular phrase today because people say, well, I'm so busy, I don't have time to look at all the issues, so just give me the bottom line. Just give me the gist of it. Just, just tell me, what is the crux of the matter? You know, when we talk about the Christian life, what is the bottom line? Well, the writer of Hebrews spells it out for us, I believe, in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 where he says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is the bottom line of Christianity? Well, it's right there in verse 14. The blood of Christ who offered himself. And why is that the bottom line? Because it cleanses our conscience. It meets our greatest need. So the bottom line of the Bible is the hymn we sang earlier, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The bottom line is the cross where Jesus died for you and me. That is the crux of the matter. That is the fundamental issue. That is the essential thing. That is the deciding point. In fact, it's interesting to me that the Latin word crux means cross. Because when you say, what is the crux of the matter? You are saying, what is the cross of the matter? Because the cross is the central issue. It is the heart of the matter. It is the dividing point. And I think that's rather obvious by the way people respond to the cross. Have you ever noticed that you can tell people you're religious and they don't really have a problem with that? You can tell people, I'm praying for you, and they don't really have a problem with it. I've heard that so much in the hospital this last couple of weeks, people coming by, nurses coming by saying, I'm praying for you. It's a Jewish hospital, so the chaplains come by and they lean their head in and they say, I'm praying for you and your wife. I got curious what kind of prayers we were getting. So a young girl stuck her head in the other day. and She was obviously a Jewish girl. She stuck her head in and said, I'm praying for you. And so I you know, wanted to know what kind of prayers I was getting. I said, well, what, what kind of chaplain are you? And she said, I'm a student chaplain. I don't know what that means. 
You know, you can say to people, God bless you. I'm praying for you. That's not offensive. You can talk about God in generic terms with people. You can talk about the man upstairs. You can talk about the good Lord. Nobody really has a problem with that. But when you start talking about the cross, people get defensive. That's when the resistance begins. You see, the cross is offensive. The natural man rejects the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. A perishing person, a lost person, looks at the cross and he says, That is foolish. If you want to see this, you just have to look at liberal theologians because this is their reaction to the cross. They hate the idea of Christ's blood paying for our sins. They would say that our views are slaughterhouse religion. They would mock you and say, you mean you actually believe in a God who would be petty enough to be that angry over sins? Or pagan enough to actually be appeased by blood? The playwright George Bernard Shaw attacked the Anglican Book of Common Prayer saying this, quote, it is saturated with the ancient and to me quite infernal superstition of atonement by blood sacrifice, which I believe Christianity must completely get rid of if it is to survive among thoughtful people. He was suggesting Christianity without the cross. Gentiles find the cross foolishness. The, the, the Jews also have a problem with the cross. In, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. The, the Gentiles look at the cross and say that's foolish. The Jews stumble over the cross. Now what is it that causes you to stumble? Well, you stumble when you've got your focus on the wrong thing. You see, the Jews stumbled over the cross because they were looking for, and are looking for, the Messiah who will reign on a throne. And they stumble over the Messiah who hung on a cross. Remember in Matthew 16 when, when Jesus asked his Jewish disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said those great words, you are the Messiah. Remember what Jesus said next? He said, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Why not? Because they won't understand. And then immediately it says he began to explain to them that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to die and rise again on the third day. In other words, he said, before you tell anybody that I'm the Messiah, I need to explain to you what kind of Messiah I am. I'm a Messiah who's going to die. I'm a Messiah who's going to the cross. And you remember Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Now, why did he call him such a strong term? Why did he call him Satan? Because Peter was getting in the way of the cross, which is the bottom line. You know, I find it interesting. Jesus said something very interesting that I hadn't really noticed before in that passage in Matthew chapter 16. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Jesus says to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me because you're trying to get my focus off the cross. And then he went on to say, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. What are man's interests? Man's interest is the throne. What is God's interest? God's interest is the cross. The book of Hebrews is written to a church made up of Jewish believers in a Jewish community. They are experiencing the ridicule from their fellow Jews because they are following a rejected, crucified Messiah. And some of them are wavering in their faith. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22, the writer answers the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why can't we have a bloodless religion? 
Why can't we all just get along and not talk about these, these controversial issues like the cross? And in this passage, I have picked out five reasons why Jesus had to die. I've listed them in your bulletin. Number one, the new covenant demands blood. Notice verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. For what reason? Well, if we go back to verses 11 to 14, he tells us because Jesus went into a greater sanctuary, not an earthly sanctuary, but a heavenly sanctuary, and Jesus offered a greater sacrifice. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ. Not sacrifices that are offered over and over, but a sacrifice that he offered once. Not a sacrifice that was good for one year, but a sacrifice that was good forever. And not a sacrifice that would just clean, cleanse the flesh, but a sacrifice that would cleanse the conscience. And because he offered himself on the cross, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, I said before that this word covenant has the idea of an agreement that outlines the guidelines for a relationship. It's comparable to in sports where they have a collective bargaining agreement. The, the management and players agree on how their relationship is going to work for the next certain number of years, and they abide by that agreement. That's a covenant. A mediator is literally a go-between. This is the person who bridges the gap between these two parties. He takes both parties by the hand, and he brings them together in a reconcilable way. We have mediators in the, in the Middle East trying to negotiate peace between Israel and Palestine. That's going on right now as they're trying to evacuate the West Bank, and it's not going very well. But that's a mediator, someone who tries to bring those two parties together. A mediator in a legal dispute attempts to bring two parties together. He listens to the terms of both sides, and he tries to work out a solution. But see, the problem in our relationship with God is that the issue is not negotiable. We have two parties. One party is a holy God, and the other party is sinful people. We owe God a debt we can never pay. And so we don't have any negotiating chips to play with. Now, a lot of people try to convince themselves that they can negotiate with God. And what they do is they try to diminish God's holiness or diminish their own sin. And when they talk, it's something like this. You know, God is too good to send me to hell. Ever heard somebody say that? God is too good to send me to hell. But the truth is, God is too good not to send you to hell because God's justice demands it. Or people will say, I'm too good for God to send to hell because I'm better than you and you and you and you. Well, I hate to break the news to you, but you are not good. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.12, there is none good, no, not one. The Bible tells us all have sinned. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. You see, there's no wiggle room in the Bible. There are no exceptions in the Bible. There are none who are good. And so in our relationship with God, we do not need a negotiator. We need a substitute. We do not need someone to represent us. We need someone to replace us. And Jesus is that kind of mediator because through his blood, he offered himself in our place. And the Bible tells us that he is the only one who could. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And our passage tells us he is the mediator of a new covenant. And that new covenant demands blood. We saw the description of it. If you go back to chapter 8, just look at verse 12. This is part of the new covenant. God says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, how can we have a relationship with God where he remembers our sins no more? You say, well, maybe God gets a lobotomy and he forgets about them. No. 
The answer is that Jesus paid for every one of those sins on the cross. The new covenant demands blood. That's why the night before the cross in the upper room, Jesus said these words. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. The new covenant demands blood. Second reason, redemption demands blood. Verse 15, and for this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, did you get that? Jesus' death provided redemption. Redemption is just a big word that means to pay the ransom price for. Jesus' death provided redemption for the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, I want you to pay attention to this verse because this verse is the answer to one of the most common questions that I get asked. People come up to me and say, well, how did people who lived before Jesus get saved? And the answer is, they got saved the same way we get saved, by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ's death didn't just pay for sins of people since the cross. His death paid for the sins of people who lived long before the cross. Christ paid for the sins of men from the very beginning of time until the end of time in his one sacrifice. Let me show you another verse that, that says this same thing. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Verse 25, verse 24 tells us he's talking about Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's just a big way of saying Jesus died on the cross. And then notice what it says in the rest of verse 25. This, his death on the cross, was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And what he's saying is that when it came time for Christ to die, he had to die in order to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Why is that? Because God had already forgiven sins in the past. You see, in the Old Testament, men sinned. And the Bible says in the Old Testament that the soul that sins, it shall die. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 tells us the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So God was forgiving people in the Old Testament, but there had been no payment for that forgiveness. When it came time for the cross, Jesus had to die on the cross just to demonstrate God's righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross, the statement was, God is righteous in forgiving all those sins in the Old Testament. In fact, the next verse says, He is just and the justifier. That's a great statement. You know, I can make a law today saying, from now on, if anybody comes in late to the service, you have to do 25 push-ups. That's the new rule. Sorry about it, but that's the new rule. Okay, now next Sunday, if you come in late, I have a choice. I can either be loving and gracious and say, let's not worry about it, or I can be just and say, you know what? I made a rule, so out in the aisle, give me 25. But see, I can't be both of those. But God was both of those. God was just he didn't compromise his standards, and he was able to forgive you and me because Jesus paid the price that our sin demanded. He redeemed us. You see, God forgave people in the Old Testament on credit, if you like. And when Jesus came, he made the final payment in one installment on the cross. Please understand this. People in the Old Testament were not saved by keeping the law. If so, how many got in? Zero. People in the Old Testament were not saved by uh, offering sacrifices. 
Those sacrifices were just a demonstration of their faith and a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that God was going to provide one day. You see, people in the Old Testament were saved by faith. That's why Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, he didn't have all the knowledge we have. He was believing before the cross. He was saying, God, I'm trusting you that you're going to provide. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I'm putting my faith in you that you're going to provide the way for my forgiveness. When David in Psalm 51 repented and said, Lord, blot out my transgressions, he didn't know how God was going to blot it out. But he was trusting God that he would do that. I love the, the time when Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain and Isaac says to his father, I see the fire in the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. See, that's the faith of the Old Testament saints. God, I'm trusting you that you're going to provide the sacrifice. Remember, remember when the Pharisee and the tax collector went into the temple and they're praying? And the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, that, that phrase, be merciful, literally what he's saying is, God, provide a mercy seat for me, the sinner. I can't go into the holy of holy places. I can't get near the mercy seat that's in there. I'd be struck dead. But God, you provide a mercy seat. And that's exactly what God did at the cross. It is the mercy seat where sinners can come and meet with a just, angry God and be forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' death was retroactive. He was paying for the sins that God had already forgiven in the Old Testament. And of course, the Jews should have understood this because their Day of Atonement was set up this way. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, they would come and the, the priest would lay his hand on that scapegoat and pronounce their sins for the past year and then the scapegoat would go off into the wilderness never to return. And the Day of Atonement was always taking care of the sins for the previous year, the sins in the past. And so they should have understood this concept that when Jesus died, his death was retroactive to the sins that go all the way back to Adam. You see, every person who is or has been or ever will be redeemed is redeemed on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ. Third reason, inheritance demands blood. And this is in verses 16 and 17, but it's really raised at the end of verse 15. Notice what he says, that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, how do you get an inheritance? Well, you have to have two conditions. Number one, your name has to be in the will. And number two, the person who makes the will has to die. And that's his point in verses 16 and 17. Notice what he says. For where a covenant is, and we said before that the word covenant and the word last will and testament are really the same word. And here he's focusing on that idea of a last will and testament. He says, for where a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a will is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Ray Stedman tells a story of being in a board meeting for a Christian conference center, and he says the director was describing an arrangement they had with a widow. She, she was paid an annuity until her death, and on her death, her property would be deeded over to the conference center. And as the director is explaining this uh, situation, arrangement that, that they have with this lady, one of the board members spoke up and facetiously asked, how healthy is she? You see, that's not really a question in good taste, but it illustrates the fact that a will is only valid when the person who makes it dies. Well, let me tell you something. God has included you in his will. You say, well, wh what do I get? Well, he tells us at the end of this verse, verse uh, 15, you get an eternal inheritance. 
God has included you in his will, and the one who made the will has died. He died on the cross of Calvary, and so we are the beneficiaries of all of God's promises. And then the fourth reason, the old covenant demands blood. Verses 18 18 to 20. Notice verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. He's saying, why are you so shocked that the new covenant is ratified by the blood of Jesus? Because even the old covenant, the first covenant, was ratified with blood. And then to show that, he takes us back in verse 19 to Exodus 24 and describes what happens there. Notice, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Now again, you could read about this in Exodus chapter 24. But Moses has just received the law on Mount Sinai. He comes down to the foot of the mountain and he reads the law to the people. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. The people listen to the words of the law, and then they respond and say, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then to ratify the covenant, he wrote those words in a book. He built an altar, and on that altar he sacrificed bulls and goats, and then he took the blood in a basin, and he began to sprinkle the blood on that book and went out among the people and sprinkled blood all over the people of Israel. That was ratifying the first covenant. What I find interesting is that when we come to the new covenant, there's a different approach. Because the first covenant is the people say, we will do everything God says. Did they? No. The first covenant was, we will. You know what the second covenant is? It's God saying, I will. In fact, if you go back in chapter 8 to verse 10, God is speaking and he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is not the people, we the people saying we will. The new covenant is God saying I will. And the old covenant was based on the blood of bulls and goats. Guess what? The new covenant is based on the blood of Jesus. And that, again, is why Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. And then a fifth reason that Christ's death is necessary is that forgiveness demands blood. Verses 21 and 22. Notice verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood, or sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. When the tabernacle was finished in Exodus chapter 40, Moses did a similar thing. He took blood and he sprinkled the tabernacle and its vessels. And every year after that, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would do that same thing. He would go out into the tabernacle and sprinkle blood around the tabernacle, cleansing the tabernacle. Why the tabernacle? Well, because that was the place that people had to come in order to find forgiveness with God. And then notice verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. Uh, have you noticed that blood is splattered all over the Old Testament? Uh, personally, I have never seen a goat or a bull or a lamb slaughtered. And I, I buy my meat pre-cut and pre-shrink-wrapped in cellophane. You know, if, if there's some blood leaking out of the package, I want to go to the manager and say, well, we've got a problem here. You know, I bought my pork chops and there's blood. You know, there's blood on them. Ugh. I would be shocked. I think most of us would be shocked if we could be taken back in time to the tabernacle and see what went on there in the continual slaughter 
of animal after animal after animal. And this was not about food preparation. This was about cleansing. This was about trying to find forgiveness. You say, well, Dan, why does it say in this verse, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood? Well, because God gives an exception in the Old Testament. Remember that? It's in Leviticus chapter 5. God says, if you're a poor person and you can't afford a lamb, then I'll let you bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. But if you're so poor that you can't afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then I'll let you bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. Why was God doing that? Well, I think God was trying to send the message that forgiveness is extended to everybody, no matter how poor you may be. And so he says, you can almost say all things are cleansed with blood because there is an exception in the Old Testament. Now, we would not associate sprinkling blood on things as cleansing them. In fact, blood stains. Have you ever had a white shirt on and you cut yourself shaving? You ladies haven't, but, but you get a little blood on your white collar, and if you don't rinse it out very quickly, it creates a permanent stain. But here he says, you sprinkle blood on things to cleanse it. That doesn't make any sense. Blood stains, it doesn't cleanse. Well, the fact is, what he's saying here is not so much that the blood itself cleanses, but what the blood pictures. You see, the blood pictures death. And that's why Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You see, you couldn't bring your animal in and say, I just want you to prick its paw, take a little blood out, I'll let my animal go home, and then you can sprinkle the blood. See, that doesn't work. Because the, the, the reality, the symbolism behind the blood is that it was a sacrifice. It had to die. It had to be that substitute in that person's place. And then he sums it up at the end of verse 22, and this is an exciting phrase. He says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You get that? There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, what did they do? They ran and they hid. And they covered themselves with fig leaves. And God came and found them. And what did God do? He clothed them with animal skins. Now, where did those animal skins come from? Those animals had to die. Blood had to be shed. In the very first story of sin in the Bible, we are shown the cost of forgiveness. And then they communicated that message to their children. And when they came to God with their sacrifices, Abel brought a blood sacrifice and God accepted it. Cain brought the fruit of his garden, and God rejected that. And Cain was so angry, he killed his brother. But see, Cain became the father of all those who hate God's way of forgiveness through the shedding of blood, and he has many followers still around today. You know, the Bible tells us that all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, all that blood that was shed was just a picture pointing to Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, please understand this. All the blood in the Old Testament combined did not pay for one single sin. God in Christ had to make that payment himself. And yet so many people today are still following Cain's lead, offering to God the fruit of their hands, offering God the fruit of their own efforts, offering God the fruit of their own works, doing it our way. Let me tell you something. In the, the, the natural man does not like blood. The natural man does not like the cross. It's offensive. It's not just because it's gory. 
You know, I was thinking this week, why is the cross so offensive? And I came up with this answer. The cross is offensive because it's humbling to you and me. The cross underlines two things. One is the awfulness of our sins. That's how much it costs to pay for our sins. And secondly, the cross underlines the awfulness of sin, but it also underlines the awesomeness of God's grace. That's how much he did for you and me. It's the awfulness of my sin. I can't do anything to appease God in myself. But the awesomeness of God's grace, he did it all for me. You see, that's humbling because it tells me that any forgiveness, any privilege, any blessing, any relationship that I enjoy with God is all because of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is the bottom line. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus only left us two ordinances to follow. What were they? Baptism and communion. Baptism depicts our death with him. Communion in the bread and the cup depicts his death for us. Both of those ordinances point to the cross because the cross is the bottom line. And so this morning, in closing, I want to ask you the question, is the cross the bottom line for you? When you think about your sin and and what you have done in rebellion against God, how are you dealing with that? Are you coming like Cain, trying to pay for it yourself, trying to do something to help God out? Or have you come to the cross and said, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness? I'm placing my faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, then I invite you to do that today. But you know, even as believers, we sometimes struggle with the idea, we commit sins and then we think, well, I'm going to try to work this out by doing something for God. I'm going to work extra overtime and kind of spiritually pay for this. No, whenever you commit a sin, even as a believer, forgiveness is only found one place, and that's at the foot of the cross. And we need to come back there. Let's pray together. You know, we don't have to fear coming to the cross because humility is the very best place to be in our relationship with God. And as Don saying earlier, he will only let us fall as far as our knees. And that's where we need to be. So let's come to the cross this morning afresh and experience the freedom that Jesus Christ has given us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we say that, we admit that we have no capacity to to comprehend all that it cost him. We probably understand it better when he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden, just anticipating the cross. And Lord, we do realize that that's our sin that nailed him there. That's our sin that he was paying for. And Lord, today, I just pray that you would give us a fresh appreciation of the grace and mercy that kept him there, that paid for our sins and provided us with an eternal inheritance that allowed us to stand today and say, I am forgiven 
because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us then to go from here as people who are changed to make a difference, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us that we need to reach out to and share the bottom line, share the crux of the matter with the cross of Jesus Christ. Make that our focal point as we go through this week, we pray in Jesus' name.